you can probably rank those managers top to bottom what was the best what was the not so best that is what your team members are doing every day right now. They're able to line up all of their managers and it's very easy to remember all of my managers, even after some 30 years, because they had such a profound impact on my life every day. We have a slide and a bit of a lighthearted matter, but it's a picture of a dinner plate and it says you as a leader are the topic of dinner conversations tonight. And so you think about that, you're coming into people's homes as a leader. You're not physically present, but you are the conversation. Hi, I'm Darren Fox, Chief Research Officer and Principal Consultant at HFL. And this is the Fast Leader Leadership Podcast for Frontline Managers. Today, we are talking about situational leadership, one of the most globally popular leadership models ever. So what is situational leadership and why is it so popular among managers like you? Well, you're about to find out. So listen in for the next half hour. Today, we are lucky to have a real expert on this topic, Andrew Meadler, to talk about situational leadership. Andrew is a master trainer and director at Blanchard Australia. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having us, Darren. Andrew, I think the first thing we need to do with this podcast is define situational leadership for our listeners. How would you describe it? Situational leadership starts off with a mindset. And the mindset is that as leaders, great leaders are servant leaders. And my job as a servant leader is to help my team members be successful. Because we want servant leaders, we don't want self-serving leaders. Once I've mastered the servant leadership mindset, then we need to learn the three skills of a situational leader. And those three skills are goal setting, diagnosing the person for the goal or task that we're asking them to perform, and then matching, providing the person with what they need to succeed. So for us, that is, and I'll refer to it as SL2 in my sort of terms, but it, it can provide the skills to have meaningful, authentic leadership conversations in less than three minutes. Thanks, Andrew. So the last time I checked Amazon, I saw that they had 50,000 books about leadership. And then this morning I checked and saw that they had 129 on the situation of leadership. So why should someone looking to improve as a leader look to situational leadership? as opposed to any one of the other leadership approaches that are out there among those other 50,000 books? Darren, yeah, there are a number of leadership approaches. A situational leader is one that over the last 40 or so years, we've had over 5 million people who have completed the situational leader program. Now, one of my clients, post-implementing SL2, we're able to achieve a 26% increase to the question, I promote my manager as a better person to work for. And our job as leaders is to create the environment for people to be optimally motivated to perform the tasks, the goals that we're asking them to do. There are many leadership approaches out there. And not to say any one of them is better or worse, 
the single most important thing that we can do as leaders is to create this optimally motivating environment for people to increase their discretionary effort. That's what every leadership book is trying to do. How do we get the most out of, of our people in a way that they want to give the best to us? The practical nature of becoming a situational leader of SL2 is that through the three skills, goal setting, diagnosing and matching, what you can do is have this common language with your team members. And by that, I mean a team member, if the goal is not clear, has the confidence and the trust to ask for clarity. In terms of diagnosing is having a common language where both team member and leader are able to agree on where this person is in terms of their competence and their commitment for that task. And then finally, again, agreeing on what it is that the person needs to complete this task. Thanks, Andrew. And the other question I want to ask you is, one of the things that we do talk about within our own Fast Leader Leadership Program is leadership brand. Predominantly, that's around being clear about what good leadership means to you as an individual, and that it's authentic to you, and then being committed to actually then being that leader. But my understanding about situational leadership is that is deciding what do I have to do for different individuals at different points of time to meet their need at that point in time. And could that be confusing to people or to my team because I am being different people potentially? So how might you challenge this view that I have and how would you marry situational leadership with leadership brand? The thing for us is that you're not a different person. The four leadership styles that are contained within SL2, they create the situational leader. That is, for this situation, this is the leadership style that's best suited to the needs of my team member. So your leadership brand and situational leadership are completely aligned. There is this, in terms of a belief at times or a perception, that you have to be these four different types of people. You're the same authentic person every time. I believe every leader wants to be authentic. Every leader wants to be a great leader. The thing that can happen, though, is if I see it from my perspective and I assume what my team member needs, I can get it wrong. And our research highlights that 50% of the time, if a leader is not aware of which leadership style I should be using for a team member, then they're going to get a mismatch, which means I'm either over-supervising this person or I'm under-supervising this person. And so that's the equivalent of tossing a coin. And for us, the clarity you referred to is critical. If the goal is not clear, then what a manager does is irrelevant. So your leadership brand is very much about you as the authentic leader, the empathetic leader. What tends to happen, though, is that we look at leadership as though it's the mirror. And as you say, it's look at yourself in the mirror and, and what do you want to be? And that's fine because we have to have that goal of ourselves of what we want to look like. As Maya Angelou had said, that at the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or what you did. They will remember how you made them feel. That's right. That is your leadership brand. How you made people feel in 20 years' time is the critical leadership brand. 
Thanks, Andrew. We're going to take a short break. And in part two of our podcast, we're going to get really practical and start asking very specific questions around the hows and hints and tips of actually putting SL2 into practice. Experts and technical specialists have never been more important or in demand, but that's not reflected in the leadership training they're given. Unlock the business potential of experts with Expertship, HFL's new development program for the individual contributors, technical specialists, and other experts in your organization. If innovation and business agility are important to you, learn more at expertunity.global. Welcome back to part two of our Fast Leader podcast on situational leadership. Andrew, situational leadership, as I understand it, has four styles, and those styles being delegating, supporting, coaching, and directing. Would you be able to just briefly describe each of those four styles? Absolutely. Thank you. The four styles relate to what the team member needs. And I'll start off with the directing leadership style because directing has a bad connotation. Again, our research and the preference tool that we use with our participants is that directing is the most avoided style of leadership out of the four. And it's because we have this connotation that direction is bad. To be a directive manager is the micromanager, the dictator, whatever you want to call them. And so most people avoid it. When it's a particularly useful leadership style, when the person is brand new to a task, I often make this joke. If you're cooking a meal for the first time and you've never cooked this meal before, what resource document do you review in order to make sure that you get it right? A recipe book. Or you look it up on the internet to see what are the steps. And that's what directing is about as a leadership style. It's providing step-by-step instructions for completing this particular task. When I haven't performed a task before, I have lots of confidence. This is going to be great. It's going to be amazing. I need step-by-step instructions to complete this task. When I'm in a car and I haven't been to a certain place before... I put an address in my navigation system. The driver is receiving directive behavior. It's not bad, and we have to overcome that perception. It's the right amount of direction, which is the critical piece. So that's directing. Coaching. Now, coaching as a title can be a little bit confusing. At this stage, what it is, is high direction and high support because the person is now frustrated. They're not getting what they thought they would be able to complete. And that's that disappointment that I thought it was going to be easy for me to do it, and it's now frustrating. And I liken this point to if you have all this energy in terms of having a look at, let's say, learning a new instrument. Well, many people at this point, when they're at D2 requiring S2, which is coaching style, many people at D2 will give up guitar, I gave up because it was harder than what I thought. My fingers wouldn't play the music that my brain was reading. Yeah, it really made it really good examples. I mean, I certainly relate to the guitar example because I've tried learning the guitar twice with a coach and heck, if I could just, I'm convinced my fingers were just not made to play the guitar. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, if we had a leader who listens to our frustrations, our concerns, and then gives us the step-by-steps, that's what they need. And that's what coaching is about. Supporting is about now moving to lower direction and supporting the person to complete the task because the person's now competent. They don't need the direction. Now, by the way, supportive behavior, as in high supportive, low directive style three, is the most prevalent leadership preference that we have. Somewhere around 60% of people are style three leaders. They don't like giving direction, very supportive. And then delegating. The delegating style is low direction, low support. And it's about leaving the person who is what we call D4. They know how to do it, leave it to them. They need you to let them get on with it. The four coaching styles that I refer to here, directing is coaching for understanding. My job as a leader is to coach this person to understand how to perform the task. At style two in coaching, it's about coach for concern. So I coach for concern by listening to their frustrations, and then I still need to coach for understanding. And that's the reason it's high direction, high support. It's, it's got a lot of effort required in style two. Style three is coach for decisions. Once the person's become competent, my role as the leader is to help my team member make the best decision possible, which means I'm not there for advice. And finally, delegating is about coaching for results, helping this person to continue to perform at the higher levels, competence, and to continually improve their performance because they're motivated to be at that level. All right. Thanks for that, Andrew. Sort of a similar question then in the practice of actually deciding what style do I need to use in this particular situation and how do I implement that? What might be some of your best tips to help people to figure out what style do I need to use right now? Mm -hmm. For us, it starts with the goal. Typically, under the old SMART model, and guilty as charged in my organizational life for many, many years, we would use the old specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. And what has happened to our goals because of that particular model is that our goals fit into a cookie-cutter approach. And it will typically be insert your functional measure. Whatever the functional measure is, insert it. Increase or decrease that functional measure. And then we add a date. And I call them goalpost goals because... It's like being on a soccer field or a netball court, whatever. We have a team of people who are contributing towards that goalpost goal. But what we're lacking is the contribution that each individual is making to that goalpost goal. For example, if I'm a defender in the team, well, my job is not to score more goals than the opposition. My job is to defend the goals. And so each of us have a contribution to make. That's one of the first things that we as leaders need to do is to ensure that people understand their contribution. If we haven't been clear on the goal, then we don't know where we're going. The second point is once we've got the goal clear, and by the way, goals happen every day. One that I'll refer to, I use this analogy. If you were on the side of a street and you needed to go from place A to place B, you jump in a taxi. What's the very first question a taxi driver is going to ask you? Where are you going? Taxi driver wants a goal. Now, you could be generic and say, take me to the city. Well, that might not be where I want to be. 
What we typically hear from our participants, and this is well over 90% of people, have heard these words uttered. That's not what I'm looking for. And that's what happens quite often when the goal is not clear. The person who initiated the goal, the task, has a picture in their head of what it is that should be done. Because I'm generally a little generic in my goal-setting description, it hasn't been clear to the team member and they leave it to perception. That's where rework, a waste of time and energy works. Great. Thanks, Andrew. We're going to move into our third and final section. We're going to ask Andrew some thoughts in terms of obstacles that leaders may face and also a personal story that he might be able to provide around an inspirational leader. How good is your virtual leadership? In a world gone virtual, every leader is asking, how do I lead effectively in a virtual environment? How do I get the most out of my team when I don't see them face to face? FastLead's new virtual leadership program gives short, sharp, practical advice that you can apply today to become the best virtual leader that you can be. Find out more at fastlead.com virtual leader. Welcome back to our third and final part of our Fast podcast. So, Andrew, I was wondering if you could give some brief insight into what sort of obstacles people leaders may face in terms of sustainably using situational leadership over time, and how could they quickly overcome those obstacles? Mm-hmm. So, there are three principal reasons that we firmly believe that leaders need to become situational leaders. The first is that we want to have a common language of leadership, and that's the first obstacle. Generally, we don't have a common language of leadership. We, as leaders, we continue to grow, and we identify those great leaders and those not-so-great leaders, and we pick up bits and pieces from the great leaders, and we know to leave those from the not-so-great leaders off to the side. And so we all develop this common language. And I remember one of my managers had a language, which was, help me understand, which was code for, you've stuffed it up, help me understand how we've got to this particular point. And that was not one of my better leaders in my memory. So when you have a common language, team members can ask for clarity on goals. Team members can share with you where they're at in terms of this goal or task. And team members can ask for what they need to succeed. The second obstacle is that the quality and quantity of our conversations are reducing. The US Surgeon General wrote a paper in late 2017, and in that he said, we are the most connected in the history of the human race, more connections than ever before, and yet feelings of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. That's when digital communication first started. And so bringing back the conversation is very important to us. We talked about children and screens. My family were in Tasmania about 18 months ago, and we're at Port Arthur. And after such an amazing day of seeing Port Arthur and the history of the convicts, of course, we were at dinner at the local hotel we stayed at. And at the table next to us were a mum and dad and two young children, about 10 and 8. Mum and dad were on their phones. The two kids were on their iPads. Now, where's the conversation? The dinner table should be about the conversation. Now, bring it into the work environment. 
major way that we communicate with people on a daily basis typically is email. And we know from research that in a face-to-face -face conversation, 55% of what I say is in my body language. It's nonverbal. 38% is how I say it, which leaves 7% in the words. So digital communication, great that it is, and we're no troglodytes in this space. It is a very effective way. However, people are hardwired to have conversations. And that's the reason that online virtual meetings and having the, the cameras there is still able to at least give you that technologically delivered face-to-face -face conversation. We rely on it for how we communicate effectively. The third obstacle is that we have to have a way to help our people to become self-reliant because otherwise, I have a T-shirt and that T-shirt is framed on a wall here, which says, let me drop everything and work on your problem. And at times, that's what managers feel like because we're not building towards this self-reliance end in mind. And people come to you and say, we've got a problem. And if I, coming back to my preferred leadership style, if I like to give advice and someone says, can you help me? We've got this problem. And I go, yes, this is what you should do. Now I've created a behavior modification, which is every time I have a problem, you're my problem solver. And so I'm going to come to you. That's the third obstacle. How do you build your team members towards becoming self-reliant at the goals and tasks that they perform, which then means that you can ask them to perform this task. They are clear about the goal. They know where they are and they know what to ask for then you have more time on your hands. That's right. I think a key message in that is quite often, I think a lot of leaders do know that every time I ask or answer a question, I'm creating dependence. And they know that they probably should spend more time sort of helping that person figure it out for themselves. But it's time. Right now, I don't have time. I know the answer I was going to tell you. Uh, maybe next time I'm going to coach you on another topic. But, but the more you do that over the long term, it's impacting your time because of that dependence. And it comes up quite a bit in our coaching conversations and in other podcasts around how do you move away from creating ongoing dependence. And we'd like to really finish off the podcast with some sort of personal reflection or story. So in this case, I was wondering if you could maybe share a personal story of when an inspirational leader affected you in some positive way. What did that leader do and what was the impact? Alternatively, talk about a success story that you may have had where you were able to coach a leader who was struggling through situational leadership. Mm -hmm. So let me start by sharing real life. For all the listeners, think about every manager that you've ever had in your career. And for most of us, we can tell chronologically, that was my first manager, second manager, third, and, and you can probably rank those managers, top to bottom, what was the best, what was the not so best. That is what your team members are doing every day right now. They're able to line up all of their managers. And it's very easy to remember all of my managers, even after some 30 years, because they had such a profound impact on my life every day. We have a slide and a bit of a lighthearted matter, but it's a picture of a dinner plate. And it says, you as a leader are the topic of dinner conversations tonight. And so you think about that. You're coming into people's homes as a leader. You're not physically present, but you are the conversation. 
And that's the profound impact that we have as leaders. So one powerful leader that I've had, I was once working for a building services construction material company, and there was Cyclone Yasi in Queensland. And so we had agreed as an organization to provide support to the various support entities helping people, particularly around providing donating building supplies. Now, I was coordinating this for the entire organization. My manager had the foresight to ask me, how many times have I performed this task? Now, he at first thought I hadn't done it before and started talking about what I might do. Because we had this trust and situational leadership language, I was able to say, I have done this a number of times. So I understand the goal. I have done this a number of times. So what he did was he changed from being about to give me directions of how to complete this task. He changed tack and went, actually, you don't need directions. Because I was able to prove in my conversation, I've done this before a number of times, leave it to me. And so he changed tack in that conversation, which meant that he changed his leadership style. He was the same person, but he recognized what I needed to succeed and gave me what I needed. Thanks, Andrew. Those are all lots of really good hints and tips and advice for our listeners. Just before we sign off, I was wondering if you would like to take a few moments just to describe the services that Blanchard Australia provides. Blanchard Australia are the exclusive distributors of the Ken Blanchard programs. I would describe us as providing practical solutions for leadership interactions. Now, that could be these leadership conversations, how to become a situational leader. It could be how do you have performance conversations with people that aren't leaving judgment and blame. How do frontline leaders learn to become leaders? And we teach those conversation skills. There's change management in terms of how do we help people through in a concerns-based model? How do we help our team members to deal with the change that they are experiencing through to the areas of motivation and how we help people to increase this understanding of how I can have these motivating conversations with my team members that increase their motivational outlook. So basically what we provide are practical solutions for conversations. Brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate the time that you've spent on our podcast today. Thank you, Darren, for the opportunity. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you for listening to the Fast Leader Podcast. I'm Darren Fox, Chief Research Officer and Principal Consultant at HFL. You can email us at info at with any questions. We'd love to hear your ideas about topics for future podcasts. You can also check out the Fast Lead website, fastlead.com, for supporting material from this podcast. Watch out for our future podcasts as we explore each of the 14 Fast Lead topics in more detail and discuss some of the latest management research, news, and topical issues of the day. And until next time, this has been the Fast Leader Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.